Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. Here we go. Back in Revelation, we've come as far as chapter 2, verse 18, to our fourth church here tonight, the church of Thyatira. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. As a reminder, this upcoming Sunday, we will have communion. It'll be a communion Sunday, and we also have our children's program it was recorded once again this year, so not a, uh, not a live uh, program, but I, I do think that you'll, be, uh, you'll enjoy it. I think it's, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And then uh, next week, we will have our midweek service yet again next week on Wednesday evening, and uh, we'll get into Revelation 3. And then for the following weekend, the holiday weekend, just a reminder, that uh, we're moving our gatherings to only Christmas Eve. So we'll have two services on Christmas Eve on that Friday the 24th, 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock with a fellowship hour in between. And then uh, we'll, we'll move right into the holiday weekend and we will not gather on that Sunday morning. Um, so that's what we've got coming up. And uh, we'll dive back into Revelation here tonight. Let's go ahead and read the first few verses together. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And they gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Let's pray once more. Father, this is your word, and uh, it is in many respects, Lord, here tonight a sobering word as we consider, Lord, the judgment that comes upon those who do not repent. And so, Lord, as we look to this passage here tonight, may we, Lord, rightly understand its contextual application. Lord, what happened to this very real church in this specific period of time. But Lord, help us by your Spirit to also, Lord, consider its prophetic application. And with that, Lord, our personal application. Lord, what do you have for us here tonight? And so, Lord, as you have stated here, that you are the God who searches the minds and hearts. Lord, do that within each of us here tonight, Lord. Whatever it is that you may find, Lord, if it's not of you, Lord, expose it. Reveal it. And by your grace, Lord, deal with it in our lives, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So once again, here, we're making our way through uh, seven churches And some of these churches, you come to them and you go, man, this is just not exactly a feel-good letter, right? This church is, is in many respects, in a bad place. But remember, it is an actual church. As all of these seven cities were and even still are, uh, they were actual places, actual churches, actual people that Jesus here through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the words He gives to John to write down, the letters to be distributed, they were dealing with real issues. Now this particular church in Thyatira, it's the modern city of Akasar, which is in modern day Turkey. And uh, we are now going, as we've been on sort of this geographical journey as well, we're now moving about 35 miles southeast of Pergamos, the previous church. So um, it's kind of made its way north 
and then we're curving around and going southeast now. And really from here, all of the remaining churches will continue a southward journey in this particular area. And so the last few churches that we considered, the first, Ephesus, that's the first church we came to. Ephesus was the church that represented the apostolic period. Remember, it does seem as if there is churches throughout history or church history is represented in large part by these churches. And so you have the first church, Ephesus, a real church there in the city of Ephesus, the church that represents the apostolic period, really the the early church following the time of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And uh, this was the church that did a lot of things right, but they had left their first love. They were so focused on elements of sound doctrine, of dealing with false teaching that was coming into the church, which is a good thing, and they were commended for it, every letter giving a commendation. Uh, but they had left their first love. They had, they had left, they had wandered away from a relationship with Jesus. It wasn't necessarily that they were unsaved, but they, in their zeal for truth, left that regular devotion and regular relationship with Jesus. And that's the most important thing for all of us. More often than not, when you find yourself in a place where you say, man, I'm, I'm just in a spiritually dry place, I'm struggling, if you're willing to do some evaluation, the fact of the matter is, oftentimes it's, man, my relationship with Jesus is not where it once was. My time in the Word, my time in prayer has suffered. And it begins to have an effect on the rest of your life and your walk. We went from Ephesus to Smyrna, Smyrna being only one of two churches that was not condemned for anything. It was only commendation for them. This church here being the persecuted church, the time following the apostolic period where heavy persecution came against the church. And it was a thriving church because of that persecution we've seen throughout history helps the church to thrive. And so this church in Smyrna was really given the message there, hang in there. Stick with it. We see that the the Lord here, He understands the, the difficulties that they are dealing with and He encourages them, stick with it. Press on. From there we go to Pergamos. And Pergamos really represented the the, the church that was beginning to compromise. This was the church that went through the period where persecution began to decrease. We see the rise of the state church, which at face value can seem like a good thing. Hey, everybody's, everybody's embracing Christianity. The problem is with that came compromise. And, uh, and so this church challenged to be faithful. Um, to stay the course. And then that brings us then to Thyatira. And as we start to make our way forward now in church history, and as we come then to these remaining churches, uh, we'll find that the situations in each of these churches is a little bit uh, darker and darker as it progresses. And, and the, the implication there for us then is that when we get to that last church, when we get to that church in Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the fact of the matter is that's the church age in which we are living. And so we'll see here as we make our way through the, the latter half of these churches that uh, the message continues to be uh, darker and darker. But it doesn't mean that there's not a remnant in every one of these churches, including Thyatira. Though there is a, a, a condemnation against them, there is also a commendation. There's, there's always a remnant. There's those who are faithful. And so, no differently here tonight with Thyatira, the Lord has a word for those who are faithfully serving Him. Now, Thyatira is one of the least influential cities of the seven. They're not, there's not much going on there. They're not a huge hub. They're not considered a capital city. They're not much of a, um, they're not a port city. There is a lot of trade that happens there. We'll consider that in a moment. But they're not really looked at as an incredibly prominent city. Thyatira was known for its trade guilds, if that sounds familiar. We've talked about that through the last few letters. The trade guilds were really the unions of the day, the, the labor unions. And, and they functioned uh, to basically control the commerce, to control the, uh, the, workers, that were hap- the, the workers in that particular area, um, to control aspects of trade, aspects of uh, buying and selling. But the unique thing about these, these guilds uh, 
um, as we've considered, was that uh, often a prerequisite for functioning and working in the guild in whatever area it was. There was Caesar worship that was required that once a year, every citizen would have to go into one of the temples to Caesar to bend the knee, burn some incense, and declare that Caesar was Lord, and with that would get their certificate, and they would then be able to work. They would be able to buy. They would be able to sell. And so it's, it's not that different here in Thyatira. However, Thyatira was much more focused on... Um, uh, the trades, uh, linens, fabrics, uh, wool. There was a dyeing industry there where they would they would dye the the fabrics, and um, so not only were the guilds in this particular area, not only did they require Caesar worship, but there was almost a lifestyle that went along with these guilds. And Thyatira specifically, it was kind of understood that if you're going to work, if you're going to be a part of one of the trade guilds, you're going to be a part of all of it. You're going to be a part of the social atmosphere. Not entirely like this, but, but sort of, if you're going to work in the factory today, you're going to go out for beers with us afterward. And whatever goes on afterwards at work, you're going to be a part of it, and you're going to endorse it, and you're going to have fun, and you're going to be, because if you're not with us, then you're, then you're not with us, okay? And, and so there was a culture that for believers here, there was, a, there was an even more difficult culture for them to navigate because there was incredible pressure on them culturally and socially to be a part of everything that was going on. And there was great wickedness in, yet again, here another pagan city. And so inscriptions that were found at Thyatira uh, help us to understand that it was a city that included, in, a little redundant here, but, but wool, linen, baking. There was, uh, because of the trades, there was slavery there. They worked in leather, bronze, pottery. Um, and so this was kind of that, a manufacturing type city. One of the major industries was the dyeing of the textiles, as I mentioned. And, and one of the most popular and expensive dyes of the day was, uh, was the purple dye. And um, in Thyatira, this purple dye was made from what was called the madder root. It's M-A-D-D-E-R, the madder root. And it was much easier to obtain this particular dye in this area. And so it made it much less expensive and, and kind of it was an imitation alternative uh, to the rare purple dye that came from the Murex snail that was found on the Mediterranean coast. So again, it was a manufacturing town and they were finding new ways to produce things in larger quantities at a lower, lower cost. But because of the high volume, um, they were able to move a lot of goods and so people did become quite wealthy uh, because of the work that was happening there in Thyatira. And so once again, I mention all of that, not only because there's some historical context, but this reinforced even more the pressure amongst these trade guilds, these unions, to say, you've got to be a part of this because everybody's depending on one another for the livelihood of the city. Some of you probably have experience with this in some of the places you've lived. And, you know, if you're from more of the what was called the, the Rust Belt and some of the failing steel industry, you've, uh, you, you've experienced and know what happens when a particular industry in an area starts to die. And so there was a lot of pressure to keep these things going. And so uh, because then there was pagan worship that was integrated into all of this, once again, this made it very difficult for Christians of the day to navigate and figure out how do I live this life amongst all of these things. And so pagan worship was no exception in this area. There were gods that were worshipped there, such as Zeus, Artemis, Apollo, uh, Demeter, Athena. Um, there was a coin that was uh, found in this particular area of Vespasian that suggests that there was a specific uh, temple there for worship of the emperor. And so all of these things were going on there. And so <clears throat> here this, this letter again to the angel, the, the messenger, the, the, the pastor, if you will, of the church in Thyatira, write, these things says the Son of God, and so here comes now the description of Jesus. There's a specific description in every letter. This particular description says, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and His feet like fine brass. This is a particular description that should have and, and does create a little bit of fear of God. 
Now here Jesus says that He is the Son of God. This is one of the few places where we see Jesus use this particular name. Often He says the Son of Man. And it's really the same thing, but here as He says Son of God, it further emphasizes, one, His deity, and two, as a result of that, His authority to judge. When He says Son of God, He's making a statement here that He has the authority to judge. And Jesus is judging this church. The description says eyes like a flame of fire. These are eyes that see that see into the supposed secret places of their hearts. The supposed secret places of their private lives. And I emphasize that because what was happening in this particular city was a good bit of uh, compromise, not unlike we've seen elsewhere, but compromise that kind of said, I can sort of get away with doing some things here and it's not going to affect my spiritual life. This is what they were being seduced to think. And here Jesus says He is the Son of God, the one with eyes like a flame of fire that can see into all of those areas of your life. There are no secret areas of your life. Christians need to understand that. There's, there's no area in our life, even when we may think that we are alone, even when we may think it's unseen, that God doesn't know, that He doesn't see. He has, he has access into every area. And that should cause us then to go, my goodness, God, God knows all things. It should cause us to be in a place of, uh, of, of, of fear and awe before Him to say, God, You know me. You know my mind. You know my heart. There's no aspect of private life and public life when it comes to to God. And then feet of brass. Brass here speaking of something that would bring judgment and destruction if there was not repentance. And so here Jesus is making clear, I'm one who is coming with the authority to judge and will judge. And this is is a good description for us to read uh, because there's a lot of this sort of Oh, the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. A lot of people want to look to the Old Testament and say, you know, God was all about judgment back then, but praise God, you know, Jesus came and now, you know, this whole judgment thing is, is gone. And hey, praise God, Jesus did come. But He's the same God. <laughs> Old Testament, New Testament, Alpha, Omega, beginning, end, same God. Not a different one. And yes, we see Jesus uh, full of mercy and grace, especially in the, the accounts that we have of His ministry on earth. But this is the same Jesus as well. The same Jesus that has the authority to judge. And it's good for us to see this be, because I delight in this, because I'm like, yeah, Lord, get Him. No. but So that we can have an understanding of the same Jesus who gave Himself for us the same Jesus who died for us, that our sins, that, that our judgment might be taken care of at the cross, is the same Jesus who's going to take care of the rest of the judgment at the throne. We've got to have an understanding of this because in our culture today, of course, we, we know this, our culture is so much about this, I can do what I want to do and, and you can't judge me and, 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 and we must know, people must know that there is one who will. There is one who will judge. And I'll leave it at that for the sake of tonight because we're going to have several chapters of judgment as we make our way through Revelation. And I will say this much, that you can't, you don't have a heart if you don't read through aspects of Revelation and find yourself just burdened for those who are lost. And so this is the, this is the description of, of the Jesus that this church receives in an effort to say, stop, repent. Now, never, nevertheless, here before the judgment, before that part comes, there are a few words of commendation. And so even here, and so this church really represents the medieval age. This church represents the dark ages. This church represents the beginnings of and and really the duration of the the Catholic church in the Middle Age. The rise of the state church and the church in Rome. And so as much as we know of a number of negative things about this particular time, there were certainly positive things that were happening. And here Jesus recognizes this. In verse 19, He says, I know your works. Love, service, faith, your patience. 
And as for your works, the last are more than the first. That's an, that's an interesting thing there to, to, to note. There were many positive things happening in this church on the part of a few. It certainly wasn't the majority. There was, there was a faithful remnant. And he gives six words of commendation here for some true believers who were manifesting the evidence of their salvation in works. Right? They were not working to earn salvation, but their salvation was working. Their salvation was producing something. Let's not forget James chapter 2, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. Works are important. It's, it, it's in many respects the evidence of someone's salvation that they've, that they've been changed and now they're giving themselves to the work of the ministry and serving the Lord and serving others. And what are the works that are mentioned? Well, it's the first thing here he says, I know your works. And so there was this outpouring of their faith. And then I think the things that followed from this were some of the specific works that Jesus identified amongst them. And so he mentions love. So despite the corruption, and we'll talk more about the corruption that was more than creeping into the church at this particular place. It wasn't like it was subtly coming in. I mean, it was just really being embraced now. But despite this corruption, there were some who remained and they loved Jesus. They loved Jesus. They loved His Word. There were people who were willing to stand for the Word of God. I mean, this was the time, this period in the church was the, was the period that included guys like John Wycliffe and Jan Hus and Anselm. Jan Hus is one of, one of the martyrs that we read about in history. He was so passionate about the Word of God. Wanted people to have the Word of God. Wanted people to understand the Word of God. Was calling out, was indicting the rise of, of the, the papacy and papal authority. I think it was Jan Hus. I, I don't know this for sure. Someone can correct me if you know this story. But but he was an artist as well, and uh, it was noted for the picture that he painted of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples while the Pope was was riding on a horse and and um, you know all all done up and and really with with the intention of saying look look at the hypocrisy here. They burned him at the stake. It said that it took twelve minutes for him to die. And that the entire 12 minutes that he was engulfed in flames, he sang and prayed for those who lit him on fire. Jesus says, I know your love, your faith. There's still a strong faith amongst this remnant. People's willingness to die is evidence of that. Ministry, that speaks of service to one another. Serving one another, caring for one another, patience. This speaks of an endurance of bearing up under pressure, great pressure upon them. And he says, your last works are better than the first. And so this is, I mentioned that that was unique because here, even though there's corruption coming in, even though things are seemingly darker and darker, that amongst the faithful, they were finishing well. Their works were stronger at the end than in the beginning. And rest assured, Christian, and this should be a wonderful thing for each of us to consider, is that it's how we finish, not how we begin, right? It's about faithfulness. And so if you find yourself going, man, I'm just not where I want to be right now or where I want to be today, well, hey, praise God, you're still breathing. Let's do something about that. Let's finish well. It's about how we finish. You know, King David, he had some, he had some messed up times, right? He screwed a few things up. There at the end of his life, he was praising God. David's one who we could say finished pretty well. And moves on to Solomon, who has a really good beginning, but not a very good end. We want to finish well. Nevertheless, verse 20, it's one you don't want to see. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And so here comes the condemnation. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. What we'll see here, and this becomes clear in the following verses as well, is that this church has given itself over to the deep things of Satan. There are dark things that they start to delve into, and we don't know the details of it all. There's a lot of people who think that there was some occultish type things happening in this particular city that believers were beginning to get involved with, or supposed believers. And so we don't know all of the details there, but, but, but Jesus here at least makes clear in this letter that you guys are dealing with some, you're dabbling in some bad stuff. And this woman Jezebel, this probably isn't her name, 
There probably is a specific woman, someone who considers herself a prophetess that is influential in this area. It's unlikely that her name is actually Jezebel. Um, We'll consider in a moment the original Jezebel, um, rather that this woman is kind of functioning in the spirit of Jezebel, if you will. Um, Why is it not likely her name? Well, we don't see a whole lot of people named that. That's one of those names in uh, biblical history that pretty well just kind of like, yeah, you don't, you just don't want to name somebody that. I, I mean, I, I've never met any. You, some of you may have met somebody with that name, but that's the one where it's like, doesn't show up in the Bible in the in the the baby names book, um, because she was a really bad woman. She's a really bad woman, and, 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 and since that time, her name has been kind of synonymous with evil, with corruption, with seduction, with leading people astray. Um, let's deal with that for a moment. It's, you can find, the, the, there's a few chapters, but there's one in particular in 1 Kings chapter 21. This is where you have an account of uh, Jezebel and, uh, and Ahab. Ahab is the king, but Jezebel's really ruling things, okay? And it starts off in 1 Kings chapter 21. It says, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. The implication here being then that Ahab kind of sees this nice land, he sees this vineyard, and he thinks to himself, I want that. So Ahab, verse 2, spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house. And for it, I will give you a vineyard and and uh, I will give you, excuse me, for it, I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. So Ahab sets out here and he doesn't really consider the fact that uh, in Israel, that's not exactly how things work. Now, he's sort of uh, delusional here in terms of, I, I'm, I'm an important guy. i got a lot of resources. I just, I want it. I want that. Give it to me. You know, we're going to make a deal. We're going to figure this out. But Naboth is thinking, yeah, you, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. Like, it doesn't work that way. One, there's not a for sale sign. Two, I wouldn't put a for sale sign. This is my inheritance. This is my heritage. This thing gets passed down. This is my livelihood. Verse 3, but Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Ahab is a big baby. He is. Here's a king. He's a king, and he comes home. Naboth won't give me the land. He can flop down on the bed, and it's time for dinner. I'm not eating dinner. Like, what? (laughs) This guy has problems. And and so here he's pouting, and Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So Jezebel comes in, and she says, in a, in a sense, and it's kinder here, she says, grow up. Be a man. You're the king. This is going to be, I'll go take care of this. You don't get this done, I'm going to go do it. Okay, this is the Jezebel that we're talking about here. And he, she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels before him, to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. She basically puts out murder for hire against Naboth. She says, I'll take care of it. I'll get the land. I'm going to get a couple of people to bear false witness against him, and then we're going to stone him to death, and we'll go ahead and get this taken care of. This is the type of woman that we're dealing with with Jezebel. She was responsible, Jezebel was responsible for bringing paganism into the northern kingdom of Israel, and so you could say that she was in large part responsible for the northern kingdom's downfall. She brought compromise, she brought deceit, and so the particular woman in Thyatira is a woman who is doing similar things. She's bringing deception, she's bringing deceit, 
Now, there's probably an element of some of the things, too, that came along with the guilds, the partying, the worldly living, um, you know, the having to participate in all of these different things for the sake of the uh, economy of Thyatira. She likely convinced some that they could partake in some of these things and be okay spiritually, that it doesn't matter. You're at work. This is a work thing. Uh, don't worry about that. You'll be okay. And, and, so, and, and how do we know this? How, 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 do we, how do we know some of these things? Well, again, if we look at what's happening from a church age perspective, well, what did we see begin to happen in the Catholic Church at this time? Pagan practices and idolatry began to be mixed with Christian spiritual practices. There was an overemphasis on works and worship, superstition, image worship. The papacy had reached new levels of authority. There was this idea of papal infallibility. Hey, the Pope is all, has all authority, can do what he wants to do. Nobody's going to question him. And this came about when they were seeking to take land, when they were seeking to have, uh, uh, seeking to grow the influence of the Catholic Church through uh, deceptive means. Okay. Um, there was worship of the Virgin Mary that was coming in, worship of the baby Jesus, statues, again, images, and these things began to replace personal faith in Christ. They began to have things like confession, indulgences, praying for the dead. So this idea that, look, you can kind of do some of these things in your personal life, your professional life, just so long as you keep a short account, you do your confession thing, you do what's told you to do to take care of your sins. Hey, you need to, everything ranging from go ahead and pray a few of these ritualistic prayers to why don't you go ahead and give us a little money for this or give us a little money for this and all this stuff will be taken care of, right? Hey, somebody died and they didn't seem to die in a spiritually good place. You give us enough money, we'll go ahead and pray them out of purgatory, this place where they're stuck. Not a biblical concept. Okay? So that's how we, these are the things that started to happen during this time. There's parallels with what was going on in Thyatira. And seducing, seduction in this context speaks of a departure from truth. And so this is now the beginning of the apostate church. And this is a church that really is continuing still today. So the, the church of Thyatira in its prophetic function is a church that's still alive today. And here's the, here's the, the awesome thing about our Lord, verse 21, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Jesus has given time for this church to repent then and still. This is what we know about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Psalm 103 verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We serve a God who desires that none would perish. He has given time for repentance, but sadly found none. You know what one of the phrases of the Church of Rome is? Semper idem. Always the same. Always the same. Now one would defend that to say, yes, we are a church that's never going to change. We're going to stand for truth. The problem is there was an indictment upon this early church to change, to repent. But there was no repentance and there has not been, which ushers in and will usher in judgment. There are consequences for a lack of repentance. No different in our own lives. So Jesus says, verse 22, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. This reads literally, cast her into a bed. And uh, it was kind of added here, sickbed, this term sickbed. Um, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. And so going back to the beginning of this section here, 
Translators added sick because this helped to understand that the very sin that they are guilty of is the sin that is causing them to be unwell, to be debilitated, to be sick. And so it's not just I'm going to cast you into a bed. No, this is the idea of of you are on hospice care because of your sin. It is damaging you. And, And very insightful here in terms of sometimes how God's judgment works is God here, Jesus, is He's saying this is what's going to happen. He doesn't say, I'm going to bring this particular calamity upon you because of this. Essentially what He's saying here is, I'm going to go ahead and just let you keep on sinning. I'm just going to let you do what you've been doing, and that's going to bring about the necessary judgment and punishment. You ever encountered somebody who's maybe living a particular way, and they sort of think they're getting away with it? Yeah? Well, God hasn't, God hasn't struck me down yet. The very pattern in which they're living will be the means of their judgment. Romans 1, for this reason God gave them up to their vile passions. There are times when the just punishment or even the necessary lesson can come from simply letting somebody keep walking down that same path. <clears throat> he says, I'll let you do what you want. That's a scary thing. It's a scary thing when God says, look, I'm just going to let you keep going down that path. You'll bring the judgment upon yourself. He says there will be great tribulation. Now, this is debated. You know, Some people are saying, well, does this just mean that there was going to be incredible trials that they endured as a result of this? Or does this speak of great tri- the great tribulation? Um, again, debated. I think there's probably an element here of, of both. No doubt there were consequences experienced Uh, almost in real time or within the lifetime of these people in this church. But being that this is a church that at least the, 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 the behavior of this church is still alive today amongst, uh, within the world, um, that yes, such people will likely experience themselves the time of the great tribulation. Um, corruption like this still exists within the church today, right? And it goes on to say, I will kill her children with death. That seems to be a redundant statement, right? I'm going to shoot you dead, that whole thing. Some say that this speaks really of this idea of the second death. If we're talking from a, a tribulation perspective, that those who follow the children of this particular ideology are going to experience the second death. Um, not only will they die and... and uh, uh, endure suffering, but then experience that second death that comes at the great white throne judgment at the end of time. Other people think that maybe this speaks a little bit to the effect on subsequent generations from the people who lived in this time. And, and again, I, I'm of the opinion that I think all of these things can really be true. Um, as you think about these people who were sort of going headlong into immorality, who were adopting views that I can have sort of one toe in the church and one toe in the world, that I can be this way on Sunday and this way the rest of the week, that I can kind of do some of the things that I want to do in the world, and if I just uh, do a couple of things or pay a little bit of money that I'm covered, I'm taken care of, Well, that's going to begin to have an effect, and it has had an effect on numerous generations since this time, is it not? And we know, and and there's a lot of debate over this as well, but Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9 tells us that the sins of the fathers are visited on the third and the fourth generation. I think there's a truth to that, certainly in the effects on the next generation. That sin has an influence on children. Much is, is caught as much as it's taught, right? But, but it's taught too. I mean, the way that people live, the, the way that, that, that your parents lived, your grandparents lived, and you observed it. If it, was, if it was wrong and it wasn't corrected along the way, you'd begin to adopt that as your perspective, as your view, as the way of doing things. But here's the thing, there's also genetic connection too. More and more is being looked at from a genetic perspective. Jonathan, you could probably speak to some of this stuff. 
You, 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 somebody spends time, somebody does drugs, somebody spends time uh, in, a, in a habitual pornography addiction. These things begin to have physiological effects on the mind such that it even can begin to change, uh, change them genetically. I mean, research is being done, even secular research is being done that proves out the fact that sinful behavior can be passed down from generation to generation. And so what do we take from this? Well, I, I think really here, you know, again, Jesus is saying, look, I've, I've, given, I've given time for repentance. I've given space for repentance. And if you don't repent, your own sin is going to put you in a position where you are not well. Your sin, your own lifestyle is going to begin to bring the consequences upon you. And your children are going to pay for this. But yet the, 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 the opinion of the people at the time, and certainly the opinion of many today, is I'm not hurting anyone, it's just me. It's my secret lifestyle, it's just what I want to do, it's not, even hurt, it's not hurting anybody. What is it? it doesn't matter to you, it doesn't matter to you, what's the big deal? But of course, that's not true. We need to stop saying that. We need to recognize that, that our, our behavior does hurt other people. It can impact people for, for generations. Anyone here? I'm, I'm going to call you out. Sorry. Anyone here from the 60s? You don't need to raise your hand. Okay, there you go. You raised your hand. Thanks, guys. What, what of free thinking? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right? <laughs> I mean, let's consider what the 60s and the lifestyle that was adopted during that time gave way to. It wasn't that long. It wasn't, it, it, it wasn't long that, hey, let's pull the Bible out of school. Let's pull prayer out of school. Let's pull the Ten Commandments out of school. It wasn't long before that sort of free lifestyle, make love, not war, gave way to 1973 and the passing of Roe v. Wade and over 62 million babies murdered since then. I'm not hurting anybody. It's just my truth, my way. My, it's just what I want to do. Hey, praise God, the end of the 60s and early 70s also gave way to the Jesus movement, right? Here we are, Calvary Chapel. Right, so God works. He says, I give space for repentance. And people did. And so I don't speak from a place of condemnation here today because here we have our, our brothers and sisters who say, yep, I was around then. But you're sitting here tonight worshiping the Lord. And so there is repentance, there is forgiveness, but let's not think for a second that our actions can't affect people for decades down the line. And it's no different today. What are the things that we are just sort of allowing today? What are the things that we are failing to stand for, for truth on today that may have an effect for generations to come? And this is, as much as you guys have heard me talk about let's be careful as believers, the degree to which we engage and, and seek to be you know, intertwined in that political system, these are the areas where we do need to go, no, we need to stand for some of this. We need to try and keep some guardrails in place that if Jesus tarries in His return and the next generation isn't going to experience tremendous consequences from our failures today. But Jesus here brings into view, he says, look, essentially every single thing, every thought, every action, all of it will be judged and people will know that, that I am the God who sees everything. You don't think we're experiencing judgment today because of some of these things? But once again, the amazing thing here is, is he says there's space for repentance. As I mentioned earlier, it's either going to be judged on the cross or judged at the throne. Which one do you want? For us, it should be the understanding that, look, all the, Lord, you are a God who sees it all. You know, my, you know my mind. You know my heart. You know how desperately wicked I really am. You know the depth of my sinfulness. But I can say that it's already been judged. It's already been taken care of. He took it. He took it. Praise God. It's done. It's covered. When He looks at me, He sees His Son. I've shared this with some of you before. Some of you maybe heard it on your own. There's a story that was told of Martin Luther. As, um, he was there in, in, in the office that he kept at the, the, the castle there in, in Germany. And, and he would deal oftentimes with incredible... Um, sort of demonic oppression, attacks from the enemy. And there was one night when he was writing and 
And it just came upon him so heavily, just discouragement and accusation. Satan, of course, being the accuser and just telling Martin Luther all the things that, that, that really should, should disqualify him from the work that he was doing. Reminding him of, of, of just who he was. You're this and you're that and you're terrible and inadequate and a, and a sinner and all, you know, all these different things. Anything that the enemy could throw at him and, 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 and just this oppression continuing to come upon him. He prayed his way through it and, 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 and it's, it's said, and you can still see the, the ink stain on the wall there if you visit the castle, that at that moment he stood up and he looked at whatever it you know, was that was this demonic oppression and he said, are you finished? And he said, you forgot one thing covered by the blood of the lamb as he threw his inkwell at the wall right? covered by yes all those things are true and the enemy will seek to take all those things and use them against you and remind you of all the ways in which you know you'll play on your feelings of inadequacy and your feelings of shame and all of this but you christian have the privilege the blessing of saying yeah you're right but i'm covered by the blood of the lamb it's been taken care of. But Jesus here is pleading with this church to say there's some of you who aren't repenting. He says, verse 24, Now to you I say unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan. Again, we don't know fully what that is. Were they really involved in some occultish type thing? Had they engaged in some real demonic activity? Or is it just that, you know what, you haven't even, you, you just stayed faithful. You haven't even, you don't even know really what's going on with some of those people. Whatever the case, these are the faithful ones. He says, I will put on you no other burden. No other burden. To those who have not gone astray, who had not known the depths of deception, who maybe hadn't experienced the true pagan worship in this city, no other burden. Simply, verse 25, hold fast what you have until I come. Here's the encouragement to him. Hold fast until I come. Hold fast. Jesus here says, just hold fast. Stay the course. Stick with it. Which is largely the encouragement to all the faithful in every one of these churches. He's saying, hang in there. Why? He says, because I'm coming. Because I am coming. This is the first mention really in Revelation of His second coming. And here Jesus is saying, hold fast until I come. These are the words of Jesus recorded by John. Jesus saying, I am coming. And many of us probably go, well, goodness how long how much longer it's a good question to ask lord how much longer look to him talk to him about it lord how long i want you to come i want to see you i want to be with you i want to get out of this mess we have to remember that a thousand years two thousand years three thousand years against the backdrop of eternity is that scripture says this, this is our momentary light affliction it's not to be compared with the eternal glory and this is the truth. He is coming. The hope of the rapture of the church is the great hope for believers. And the action for us is hold fast. Stick with it. Don't give up. Don't be led astray. Don't be deceived. Don't be seduced. Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, While we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you looking for that blessed hope? Is that your hope? He says, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to Him, I will give power over the nations. He says, you're going to rule with Him. Christian, we are going to rule with Jesus. We are going to experience the perfect government. The government will be upon His shoulders. Can I get an amen to that? Vote Jesus. Right? I can get behind that. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give Him the morning star. What's the morning star? What is it? Who is it? <laughs> I, Jesus, Revelation 22, verse 16, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. It's a tough one for us to really kind of, we just, we can't, we can't fully understand it, but here Jesus, once again, no differently than um, Pergamos and the heavenly manna, Jesus being the bread of life, he's saying here, look, I'm going to give you me. You're going to have me. You're going to be with me. 
Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a son is given. He's been given, but, but we don't even have all of it yet. There's not going to be any sun in heaven, you know that? Yet there's going to be light. Never darkness, no night. Where's the, where's the light come from? Jesus. His glory. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be floating around on clouds playing harps? No. Thank you, Renaissance, for that. Your little pictures. No. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. To Pergamos, he says, you're going to get a ticket to a banquet, a feast. We're going to celebrate. We're going to eat. Amen? No meat, apparently. Sorry. But whatever he's got, man, it's going to be good. What's the, the impossible Whopper? <laughs> it's going to be one of those in heaven. <laughs> it's going to be good. Whatever it is, man, it's a feast. He's going to say, you've got a seat at my table. A river. A river that runs through the city. Gives life. He says, I'm going to give you me. Just hold fast. Hang in there. That's the challenge to us. As I mentioned, as we make our way through the end of these letters, it's going to continue to get a little tougher and a little tougher and a little tougher, bringing us right up until the age in which we live now. But along the way, He's going to commend the faithful remnant. In many respects, He's got a message just for you and for me. To say, I know what you're doing. Keep, keep it up. Hang in there. I'm coming. Amen? See your hope tonight? Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you thanks, Lord, once again for our time together here this evening, Lord. What a, what a privilege, Lord. What a sweet thing it is when the body comes together, when we sing, we rejoice, Lord. We study your word, we fellowship. Lord, we pray that it's all been pleasing to you, that you're glorified in it all. And Father, we do give you thanks, Lord, for the gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one who cries out to his church still today, to the faithful Say, hang in there, hold fast, I'm coming. And Lord, we take our eyes off of you every now and then, Lord. We admit it. We look to other things, we put our hope in other things, but Lord, we declare, we confess here tonight that Lord Jesus, you are our hope. We want you. And so Lord, draw us more and more into yourself. Make us a people, Lord, who truly hold fast. Lord, because we want you because we're longing for you, because we're hoping for you. Help us, Lord, to be a people who are constantly, Lord, waiting for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We praise you. Go before us here tonight, Lord. As you, can, as you tarry in your return, Lord, continue to lead us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit our website at ccnortheast.org.